Can homelessness be solved? Absolutely, it can. Political will and the right amount of dollars. We saw during the pandemic even that the sector was able to house thousands of people in a matter of months. Thank you, Michael. I'm so excited today because we're here joined by Michael Braithwaite, um, who's the CEO of Blue Door. And you have a like a long line of successes working in the sector for housing, for homelessness and, and trying to fight that. Could you share a little bit about your background? Uh, absolutely. And it would be wrong of me ever to take uh, any credit for any of that success because I've been incredibly fortunate along the way to work with really, really talented people who care. Um, yeah, I grew up uh, I grew up in Niagara. And for about 23 years, I worked at the YMCA in uh, various different uh, sectors, some of it with youth and employment, youth at risk and employment. Uh, my last stint in Hamilton, we had uh, we had a men's residence. And with the YMCAs, there's like men's residents or residences uh, uh, over the years have kind of done away with those. But the Y still had this residence. And it was 100, 174 guys living together. Uh, except there was no social services wrapped around it. It was independent living, but it was never really meant to be that way. So picture 174 guys. It was the cheapest independent living in Hamilton. So you could actually afford this room that didn't have a kitchen, that didn't have a bathroom, a shared bathroom, no kitchen for on if you were on social assistance. So what happened when you do that, when you don't have the right things wrapped around it, it was a bit of a disaster right? Where you have people with addictions and mental health problems living at the Y without services because it was what they could afford. So that really opened my eyes to uh, homelessness. And when an opportunity came up in York Region at 360 Kids at the time, which was Pathways, uh, I applied and uh, the board took a gamble. They'd never been a CEO. They uh, took a gamble, hired me in, and the journey started from there. We did some incredible work around youth homelessness there and in 2017, spent a couple of years with Raising the Roof, which was more of a national kind of think tank on what are some of the things we could do um, or set up for others across the country leading this work to do it. But I really miss the, the grassroots of being on the ground and doing the work. Um, so when an opportunity came up in 2019 with Blue Door uh, organization up in New York region that has been doing work with uh, our most vulnerable for 40 years now. Um, when that opportunity came up and I saw the opportunities within Blue Door to do more, yeah. they've been doing uh, emergency housing for a long time. And uh, we know in order to prevent an end homelessness, we're going to do a lot more than that. Uh, again, the board uh, gave me the opportunity. I stepped in there and been working with an incredible team ever since doing some new and innovative stuff uh, in the journey to uh, prevent an end homelessness. Well, it's, it's, Something that's so important. I'm so glad that, you know, it's it's a matter of taking a chance in the political will and the desire to make a difference. And when we have a lot of people who are sort of share a common value system and, and say, we need to address this, so much can happen, right? And then that's a part of why I wanted to speak with you because in a time where housing prices are going up, rental prices are going up. We see that there's less shelter space. There's, you know, there's, there's a lot of things happening in the world, which would 
lead us to believe that we can't catch up with affordable housing. We can't catch up with the healthcare system. Everything's falling apart. How can we, I think, no, we could. We just need to look at how we can solve this. And you mentioned this while 2019, when COVID hit, it was remarkable how when the political will was there and people were like, no, we can change this. They were able to house so many people. Yeah, well, the first message that, if you remember, that came out of COVID from government was stay safe, stay at home, right? And then you have 235,000 Canadians without a safe place to go home. So that was impossible to do. So they quickly realized that and empowered and put dollars towards uh, social service agencies to uh, make deals with hotels and, and find landlords who were willing to rent out spaces. And we did that. We worked across the country. Thousands were housed immediately. Right. So we know we can do this when there's political will to say this is important. For people to stay healthy and safe, housing is yeah. important, uh, and the dollars put towards it, we can move. We can move quick, so yeah. very, very solvable. Um, unfortunately, you know, when as as the pandemic slowed, uh, that political will changed a little bit, and there's lots of different things, right, that they have to pay attention to. Uh, so we have less. I mean, part of the problem is we always talk about new supply. We got to build, 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 and we absolutely have to do that, but. We have crumbling infrastructure and the housing that is there right now is being also bought up by the private sector that might renovate and it's no longer affordable. Yeah. So we have less affordable housing now than we did in 2015. Yeah. So we've got to pay attention not only to building new affordable housing, but maintaining uh, the affordable housing that's out there. And a strategy that when affordable housing comes up for sale, that it's kept in things like land trusts and other ways dollars are made available so we can keep that. Uh, affordable for a lifetime. Yeah, no, and and that's really key because even I was reading in the paper the other day just how maintaining, um, even when we have TCHC and we have affordable housing, a lot of these homes need constant repair and attention and there's not enough dollars to help and it becomes comes into a state of disrepair that they're like, well, you know what? It's costing us more money to just keep the ceiling up and we don't want it to be unsafe. So we're going to demolish the whole thing and you displace the people who are living there. And even though they have the right to come back, how long is that going to take? Like for a new, for them to demolish the current space, the building, and then get the plans and then get it built up. So it's, it's one of these constantly, like moving things where, okay, sorry, you can come back, but come back in like, I don't know, three to five years, maybe. By then, people will have moved on. I, well, I think we've gotten better. I mean, the, the Toronto Community Housing Buildings you're talking about, you're right. They got into a lot of trouble because years ago, they built it and didn't have a capital plan to constantly uh, be uh, repairing and keeping them in a good state of repair. I see in the region that I'm in, York region, when they build something new, they've got a, they know that building is going to depreciate, even though they'll um, sink money into fixing it, but they'll have a plan that in 25 years, we know we've got to have money aside to rebuild that, right? Yeah. So you're not displacing and doing that. So, so I think we've gotten better with the planning. The problem yeah. was it got so bad, especially with a uh, Toronto community house a few years back that the feds had to step in and say, you know, there's this huge backlog and yeah, you're displacing people and that could take years if they ever do come back. Um, so we just have to get better in the planning process when we're building housing and community land trusts, um, you know, when we're putting those together, knowing that every building has a lifetime, 
Uh, and you've got to sink a certain amount in, but at some point you're going to have to replace that building. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like when we look at other countries who have tried to address housing, right? Um, Finland, for example, has done a remarkable job and you've actually interviewed them a lot about and talked about it. Can you speak to that process? Like it doesn't happen overnight, right? So part of this planning of, you know, how do we provide housing for underserved populations? What do you think it takes and what are the precedents that have existed? Well, yeah, you're right. It, it, in Finland, it didn't happen overnight, although sometimes, because they're, they're always pointed to, look what Finland did. Yeah. Uh, um, and so the Y Foundation is a group uh, in Finland that really kind of pushed a lot of this work. And when you talk with them, you're saying, listen, this was 20 years plus in the making, uh, where government stepped up and said, housing is going to be a top priority. They used to have 652 emergency housing um, units, and now they have about 50. And it's not because people to, you know, uh, 600 fewer people need housing. They decided at the time, if we're going to do this right, not everyone needs emergency housing. They're using it because that's all that existed at the time. Okay. We've got to do all, we've got to build all sorts of different types of social housing. So some that is shared, uh, some that uh, maybe people live semi-independently, somewhere they live independently, uh, somewhere they might need 24-7 care for different, different natures. So they did this yeah. over time and through different, um, uh, through through uh, different political parties being in charge, it, housing always stayed there through the rally of Y Foundation and others to say we got to continue on this. And they saw the numbers dropping, right? So politically, getting voted in, you weren't going to steer away from that chorus, right? They saw that people like that. And now they're at a place where they'll be the first country to say we've added homelessness. Now, when, when countries say that too, it's got to be continuous. It doesn't end, right? Because someone will point to, well, what about so-and-so I see on the street? Uh, well, we've got enough spaces and we've got enough services that if people can come indoors and the will is there, they, they can, right? So that's ending it. There's something called functional zero, which in Canada, even in medicine, had Alberta, they've got to this functional zero, meaning that we have enough beds and services for people uh, in need if we'll come inside. So they've, in a sense, ended homelessness even in our own country. And that's been a great example that others can follow, right? Just the, yeah. the basics of that. Well, would you be able to speak to the success that you had in Richmond Hill? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think one of the challenges in York Region as a whole is, uh, and you grew up in York Region, right? Yeah. It's massive. You have nine, municipal you have nine municipalities it could take you an hour to drive across York region. So there's lots of open space. So it looks a little different than say, uh, homelessness in Toronto, which mm -hmm. is downtown right in your face, street homelessness you see. So for either politicians or the general public, homelessness is not an issue, right? And I, I tell the story often, I lived in Markham for a couple of years. And my daughter at the time was about 12. And she said, hey dad, there's a homelessness in New York region. But she you know, told me two things. Number one, she didn't know what I did for a living. And she has fairly typical of a teenager. Uh, and number two, she spoke like most people, because they don't see it, it must not exist. Right. Right. So part of my job and the job of my team is to tell the stories, to build that awareness, to get it out there. And uh, we knew that um, approximately 300 to 500 youth every year were experiencing homelessness in New York region. And we had, I think at the time, uh, 15, maybe about 30 bets, right? So there's a massive gap in service. Yeah. Uh, Majority of those beds were located up in Sutton, which is you know one or two hours by bus from say Richmond Hill. Yeah, from some of the bigger centers: Richmond Hill, Markham, Vaughan, uh, Newmarket. Those areas very complex transit system, expensive to get there. And if you miss the bus, you know you're you're trapped, right? So so the need was there. 
Um, and then it was just working with the powers that be. So the region of York and their housing team, Housing York, I and others to say, uh, you know, to, to demonstrate that, give them the, the data and information they needed to prove that the dollar should be spent. Uh, the region then came to, to us and said, we have an idea of mixing kind of, um, I think it's nine story building with mostly seniors of various different uh, incomes and putting this youth services piece of uh, transitional emergency housing at the back, and which is a great model, right? It's a beautiful building. Um, it's mixed. You have mixed people in the apartments. It's, it's worked wonderfully. And they said, if we build it, will you operate it? Like, are you that locked into, we must own this? Listen, it's never been about ownership or okay. uh, real estate, but it's about providing the services. Um, and that got built. And, and, and listen, it, it was not easy. I mean, so we've seen it now. So in Richmond Hill, we saw it three nights. We had one, the counselor whose ward it was in, uh, was uh, fear-mongering that this was going to be the end of times. It was going to be Janie Finch, Regent Park. Again, uh, you know, things that we built, I say we as a sector built years and years ago when it was, all right, let's just get as many of these units as possible in one area, which is the wrong approach, which we learned from. Yeah. And they, you know, as they've demonstrated, when they redid Regent Park, they didn't do the same. And it's beautiful, right? A real yeah. mixed uh, community. But he was doing that. So we had community members that were up in arms. It was on Young Street, oh man. But at the end of the day, uh, we rallied enough faith communities and others who said, like, these are this, these are for the kids in our community. They're coming from somewhere else and, and they matter and we need to do this. Uh, so we won, the, you know, the day was won. They built the facility. It's been beautiful uh, up there. And it is really... You know, working with uh, the mayor, the councillors, the regional uh, folks at all levels, too, provincially, federally, uh, to help them just wrap their heads around it. And I've told you this before. I think that most Canadians, politicians included, um, they, you know, they're good people. They want to do something good. They have different ways of getting there, especially in different political parties. But they don't really understand the issue because um, of the images of homelessness that we've kind of grown up with. Yeah. What, like, what does the face of homelessness look like? That's a question I was going to ask you, right? Well, it's quite often, right? Everyone wants to know, people want to know how many and what does it look like? Uh, and how many we've been doing point in time counts across the country now to get a better level of how many and say about an average of 235,000, 300,000 Canadians, right? That will experience homelessness in a year. But the look of it piece, there is, is no look, right? We, we have these stereotypical looks. So if I ask, a group of adults, what does homelessness look like? They won't say much because they don't want to say the wrong thing. And um, But when I ask, you know, grade three classes who have no filter, they'll just say, yeah, it's, a, it's an old guy with a big beard, city of Toronto. And they basically describe me. Um, <laughs> and then, and then, but they're not wrong. Like the way they come into Toronto, see with their parents, that's what they see. Someone asking for change, et cetera, right? The, the truth of the matter is like that is absolutely straight homelessness, but it, it's street homelessness by like 20%. The hidden homelessness piece, it looks like, you know, you and I, it looks like everyone, there's no look to it. Homelessness is that feeling of loneliness, of fear, of desperation, uh, loss of hope. Uh, and so it really is that feeling, especially with youth, right? Because youth uh, don't want to be attached to that stigma. You know, if you can, and it's hard for me to re remember back that long, but in high school, it was about having the right shoes, having the right clothes, having, now it's about the right phone, all that kind of stuff. So, so they'll say, well, look at that kid. He's got like Air Jordans and he's got a phone, whatever you tell me. Uh, he's homeless. Yeah, he is, right? Because he spent every dollar he can on fitting in. And he's, yeah. and he's getting ready and like, you know, um, 
the a local SO, get, you know, washroom to go to school. It's walked around all night. And then again, gets labeled in school as that lazy kid sleeping through class. So it finally feels safe, man. But if you spent any time on the street at night, you would understand like that's it's crazy. They, they don't. And they're apprehensive of going into shelters because there's kids in there that are pretty street savvy. It's a pretty scary place to be. And a slippery slope too. Once you enter into the shelter system, so wow. there is no real look to it. It really is about that that feeling. That's you know like how you describe like the slippery slope of going into a shelter. Why some people will avoid it and youth homelessness and just kind of the fear of being found out. Yeah, you know, and I I have met someone who super smart, super brilliant. And was actually homeless, but wouldn't describe himself as homeless. Yeah. Um, and still engaged in the community and things. And so it just kind of was one marvels like, how does someone become homeless? What are the circumstances that lead to it? It's it's a great question. So quite out, like what what are the paths into? So there's yeah. many, many paths into homelessness, and unfortunately, uh, not as many out. But for youth, um, I think it was in 2017 national survey that the Home Depot Foundation sponsored, but uh, 80% of youth who experience homelessness for the first time is due to family breakdown. So okay. things we don't think about. So divorce, uh, violence in the household, maybe that that youth just came out to their parents. They said, you know, I uh, can't live here. Um, and, and yeah, so there's a lot of uh, homophobia, transphobia, uh, especially, you know, in diverse communities too, where, you know, the, the the values and, and traditions don't welcome that, right? As we have kids, that might be AC school, tons of friends, whatever. They finally, you know, they, they rally up their courage to come up to their parents and they're kicked out. They have no idea where yeah. to start. They're yeah, of course. Kids, right? Of course. Um, so, so many paths and it might be mental health um, or addictions or, you know, combo, but it's also early childhood trauma, right? Yeah. Um, sexual abuse, different things that happen that kids might not even know. Um, they've blocked out, but it affects them later. And to deal with that, maybe they get in, you know, uh, with the wrong crowd. Maybe they experiment with drugs and and or untreated mental health uh, pieces that where their parents. And sometimes, you know, you you see it where you're like, wow, that family, you know, is so well to do. How can they have a child that's experiencing homelessness? And the family's in tears, saying, look, they just can't live here. They're they're violent. They're, they they stolen from us. We just can't control it. It's not safe for us anymore. And you feel for them because everyone's judging the family, right? On the, yeah. this, on the other end of things, you have these kids who have really, like I said, haven't done anything except maybe don't want to arrange marriage, right? And can't accept that. And then they're cast out. Yeah. Uh, and again, have no idea. Where do I go from here? I mean, like, you know, in a way, I would think that if I was a young person and I get cast out, I would call my friends and be like, can I couch? Like, it probably is the slope of, oh, where's, where can I couch? Like, okay, I can't stay, overstay too long. And then it just, you know, devolves in some ways. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So we ask youth, we used to take uh, youth uh, on this experience of spending a night on the street to understand it. And so we would ask why we're riding the bus with them. Where would you go if it happened to you? And they always talk about family. Like I, I remember that one kid said he'd go to his notice, right? Cause, cause she would, you know, but what if you couldn't go there? Where would you go? He said, I have no idea. Like after that runs out, your friend says you can stay on your, yeah, you can stay at my place for bed. And the parents are like, well, that's weird. So you leave there and then you go to another friend's, but eventually, it runs out. And so you, you, for the first while, you walk the streets because you're too ashamed 
So yeah. you do that, you're changing up doing things, you're surviving, you're getting by. Um, and then maybe you even, you know, to numb the pain, you turn to drugs, right? Like some people don't understand. And then that affects, if you didn't have mental health challenges going into it, um, you know, living on the streets. And if anyone's ever spent a couple nights on the streets, what it does to your mental health, not sleeping right, not functioning right, not eating right, um, you know, it, it really does kind of evolve into mental health stresses where again, maybe you're self-coping through using drugs, but the judgment is harsh, right? Uh, for adults in homelessness, it can be also that too, where a divorce, you're financially stable, a divorce decimates the family um, and, and something happens, a job loss, uh, again, a trauma that you didn't deal with as a kid spikes up, so you're not able to work and that kind of thing. And, and yeah. unfortunately what happens now is that you might have someone where it's simply just an income thing, where like I'm a couple hundred dollars short of rent, I don't know where to go, so they go into emergency housing. They don't need that. It's really, emergency housing is really expensive. All I need is is affordable housing. But they're taking up the space. So from someone what does emergency housing look like? Like if someone were like, can you help clarify that? I call it emergency housing. People will call it shelter. I don't, I don't like the stigma attached to shelter. Okay. I say emergency housing because even if it's one night, it's someone's home. Right? So it's housing. So emergency would be 24-7 around the clock, staff that are there. Uh, it might be sharing a room with four others. So even when like, you see people, they're like, they'd rather stay in that tent. No, they wouldn't. But the type of emergency housing we're offering them, they don't want to go to because maybe they've uh, had a bad experience with someone taking their stuff with violence, with, you know, different people that are in there. That's they, they'll, they'll go into housing. They just want a little more choice because they'd rather uh, they think it's safer on their own than going into those. So emergency housing is 24-7 support. Very expensive. It, it could be two, $3,000 a month for an emergency bed, whereas transitional housing, where you have some supports wrapped around it, but it's semi-independent, is you know half that cost. And then just affordable housing might be you know a quarter of that cost. So it's way, the housing first principle is, it, not only does it save and change lives, but it's more affordable. Okay, so when you say it's very expensive, it's expensive to who? Well, when it's, it's, it's to all of us, right? So funding usually falls on municipalities. So the city of Toronto, the region of York, yeah. uh, to fund through the province, to fund those beds, right? And so to increase the number, when people say we need more emergency housing, uh, it's very, very expensive to do so. That's a really good point because I, I think it's a nuance that people won't understand. Like, it's, oh, just get more shelters, get more beds, like open up a gym, right? And and I think that's really important to just, you know, distinguish and delineate from. Um, and as you broke it down, affordable housing is actually dollars and cents more affordable and like a cheaper solution. So what could be a viable solution if we were to, you know, if we could make, you know, just throw out ideas of how do we address homelessness? What is something that government could do? Or, you know, what is something that society could do to help address that? I think first off, we, we have to get past the idea of this uh, good enough stuff, right? Okay. Where, and I say that because people are well-intentioned. Like, all right, you know, because I'll get sent stuff about like, hey, look at this awesome tent that does. And here's a sleeping bag that can like, you know, would that be good enough for you? No, right? So we yeah. don't need better sleeping bags or or heated benches or or better tents. You need housing, right? Um, a mat on the floor. Like sometimes we do that. We're like, is if we save this person's life for a night, 
good job, like good enough. We got to get past the good enough stuff, right? If you ask uh, Neil Hetherington, who runs uh, Daily Bread Food Bank, like, hey, you know, what's the solution? You'll never hear him say more food banks. Yeah. He'll say, he'll say uh, Michael, pull me out of business because if we have housing and income that can you know support people, they don't need food banks. They can buy their own food. And so food, more food banks isn't the answer, right? Just like more shelters isn't. We actually have enough shelter space if we open up enough affordable housing space out there that we wouldn't have people in emergency that didn't need that, right? There are always will be some that will need that type of 24-7 support yeah. for a period in their life. Um, but for 80% of people that come into the Toronto shelter system, it's say one and done. It's short-lived. We never see them again. It was just to help them through, right? Until they got into housing. That 20% chronic needs a little more attention. So the solutions really are investment in deeply affordable housing. Because you'll hear the term affordable housing a lot. Defined by the federal government, by uh, CMHC, it's 80% of mid-market rent. And, you know, in your business, you know, yep. 80% of mid-market rent is not affordable to most when we're talking. We need deeply affordable. And deeply affordable usually means that people pay 30% of their household income to housing. And then that might be affordable. That's kind of the, the, the bar. So we need to build all sorts of or affordable housing units of different types. Yep. Some shared, some not. Um, and we, we need to do that. We need to do that quick. Uh, the, the Trudeau government has said by 2030, we want to build 3 million homes across Canada. And, and I think the push is let's make a lot of this deeply affordable. The, the challenge with that, too, is that, and, and, and I'll tell you about a, a kind of a neat program we have to, to help with that, is that uh, we don't have the people to build the homes, right? Because people in the trades are retiring rapidly and people aren't going into uh, into the trades. So we need yeah. that. You also need proper income supports, right? 15% um, of people living in Ontario receive Ontario Works, which is social assistance welfare, uh, or ODSP, which is a disability pension, right? 15%, those numbers. So uh, a single male, let's just get over $700 a month. And that is across Ontario, right? So. A little different. $700 is never enough, but it's a little different in Niagara than it is Toronto, right? Cost of living, but it's the same. Um, someone with disability, you get about $1,200 a month. Uh, the average rent in the GTA is about $2,000 a month for a one-bedroom apartment. So the gap is just massive. 2000 like, for a bachelor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or right. like 2000 for a basement apartment. Yes, we're not like, we're not talking fancy digs here, like just the basics, right? And then, so the gap is huge. My, my team told me, they said, well, we have men that come into our program and they say, I'm on OW, their heart just sinks because they know it is going to take like a, a unicorn, they're going to have to find that space to house them for $700 a month. And they are creative and wonderful. And there's landlords that are cool, but that that is not going to house. Like we used to house 400 people a year. It's now down to 200 because it's just, the, the, we haven't kept up, right? Those incomes and the amount of affordable housing. We're losing, for every new build, we lose uh, 13 to the private sector, crumbling infrastructure. So we're losing it faster. So we've got to maintain our infrastructure. We've got to build new. But I'd love to see the federal um, government come to the table, much like they did with healthcare and childcare. We say we're going to approach every province to do kind of a, a 10 year uh, agreement where we'll give you X, you know, billion dollars yeah. uh, of dollars to bring incomes up to a certain level where people can realize housing as a human right. And, you know, there will be people, well, you know, that's going to cost. Where's that going to? You mentioned this. It, it saves dollars. When you put people in, when people have housing, um, it's, it's actually 
uh, cost effective because they're not going to the hospital. People that are unhoused go to the ER five times as much as someone who's housed. Uh, you know, fire services, police services, legal aid, yeah. all that kind of stuff changes. People are more involved in their communities, uh, better able to work in their house, right? So it changes the economy for the better. It's an investment in people. Yeah, I know. And thank you for covering all of that because I think it actually helps illuminate what options there are, sort of thinking outside of the box and also kind of like, you know, helps people to understand what does this look like and what is possible. So I really appreciate that. And there's something that we can all do. And you mentioned the piece about, well, maybe we have a stipend, a housing stipend, and that it will, will on the other back end, save money from all of those resources. And I think that's a shift in thinking about it. Like, oh my gosh, I just see like it's going to cost X amount. We're going to give someone like $2,000 a month to get housing and the judgment and all of those things. But on the back end, we're saving from going to the hospitals and accessing all these other things. I mean, the stat that you had mentioned to me um, before was like, was it like five time ER visits yeah. by the homeless are five times more? Yeah, yeah. So if you're unhoused, You'll go, you'll hit the ER. The ER doctors will tell you, we're seeing, you know, we see Lee all the time. We know you by first name. You're in here all the time. There's a, there's a super cool program in uh, Edmonton that they're doing where um, they'll have immediate housing for people being discharged from the ER that are experiencing homelessness. And, and I talked to the, I interviewed the doctor who's doing this and he's like, yeah, cause I knew all the people experiencing homelessness by name. I see them like daily coming in because they had nowhere to go here in Toronto. Saint, I think it's St. Mike's has a team of people that are calling and trying to do that kind of outreach and connection work with four people to help them because they see so many people coming in to stay warm or just people who don't need to be in the ER, which are expensive and emergency yeah. services, right? Like, so it saves a lot of that. But when you have healthier people, healthier, they're able to, um, you know, work on their mental health or physical health needs. We have a labor crisis. You'll have a, a larger workforce of people who can work. So it works all the way around. It, it's a true investment in people. And I think you know, we've seen this in the city of Toronto where people are seeing, you know, more and more people experiencing homelessness on the TTC um, and in different places. And you have over 100,000 people on the waiting list for affordable housing that's out there, right? Subsidized housing. A housing benefit allows that person to find their own house and not to be on that list, which takes, you know, 12 to 14 years, maybe. There's an article about a man who's been living uh, in a tent in Toronto. Yeah, you see that? that. So, so it's great. He's finally, because of his health, has said, you know what, I'm ready to come inside after, what, like 20 years in this yes. tent. And he's excited. Well, they said, well, it's going to be four years. So, so this guy, in bad health, could die in his tent before yeah. he gets housing, right? So, so we have to have that, that portable benefit. It has to change. But we also have to really be innovative and try different things and not be afraid to fail. There's cool stuff happening all around the world. Uh, when I was at 360 Kids, there's a program called Night Stop in the UK, where it's about community being a part of ending homelessness. And it's really simple that you have uh, people in the UK who might be retired, their kids have moved out, they've got space in their homes, okay. right? And they've said, hey, I'll volunteer. And you also have kids that going into that shelter, emergency housing system, they're not going to thrive in that. Maybe it's just a fight with their parents. Maybe they need a couple days uh, to set things straight. So, so you it's very preventative in nature. So you put these people will take them into their homes with support from an organization, 
and they, they stay there, they have food and they have shelter uh, while they're working, maybe through something with the parents, reconciliation, working through, or maybe they're working on their own housing or whatever it is. It's community. There's no cost to it except for the, the supports wrapped around them. So I made a, years ago, uh, Dr. Stephen Gaines mentioned the program from the homeless hub to me. And so I just did a cold call to the person at, at this organization. And, you know, a few, you know, two years later, we found the funding and 360 has been running uh, this, this host homes program ever since. It's really cool. And in, in York region, you have all these massive homes in order to yeah. downsize to, you know, people are like, yeah, I'd love to be part of the solution. They feel great. Uh, space is going to good use, things like that. And then I also, stuff that we learned through failing, right? So I've been a part of the problem for a while. I, I say that through failing, like through youth employment services, we be, or just employment services. So someone comes in and we look at that kind of good enough principle, like, all right, I'm going to get Lee a job uh, at this place and it's going to pay our minimum wage and the hours are going to be terrible and she's going to hate the job. So in a sense, I'm setting you right. up for another failure. Like you needed it, right? And then it doesn't play into poverty and it's a mess, right? So Blue Door took a look at that. And there's a program in Toronto called Building Up from Mark Sobrano, a great guy. And I, it's a construction social enterprise. Yeah. And I said, Mark, would you come north of Steel? He said, because I have no interest, but I'll help you. So we, we set that up. It's called Construct. And what it is, so we have a construction company. Um, and if you said, come renovate a basement or do something, we do that work and professionals do the work and you pay. So money coming into Blue Door, what you don't pay for are there six to eight individuals that are getting some hands-on experience in a paid employment program that after the six to eight weeks are going into those trade unions where they start at 21 to 28 bucks an hour. Coincidentally, what you need to rent a one-bedroom apartment, the wage in the GTA. So it's preventing them from falling into homelessness. They're starting with a meaningful and how many of us can point at something like they can and say, so I, I was part of that building. I, I built that or the I did pride. that. Whatever. Yeah, I, I did the concrete for me and that, whatever. And, and the trades desperately need people at will for the next 10 years. So they're building homes for people who need homes. And we're keeping them in homes by doing this. So it's multiple wins. Yeah. And then the Home Depot Foundation came on board and said, this is super cool. And, and we formed a program called TradeWorks across the country that helps support this. So you have Home Depot, you have federal money that uh, it comes into it. You have provincial money. The province has been great investing in the trades. So everyone's winning. And Blue Door is bringing in renovation money so we can build housing so we can add services not on the backs of government or taxpayers so everyone wins with an 80% placement rate for this program but people go to the trades going yeah I don't even need you guys anymore I can afford a home I can afford it we had a couple that came through with a, a little baby and both of them went through the program and they're saying it's just so nice to, to finally almost like breathe again because we know we're going to be okay because the jobs are there and they love it yeah. right so it's solution-based and and it's you know when I say that like leap in the net will appear. Sometimes we got to try and be innovative and be fearless, um, and some of it won't work, but some of it does, and that's where impact happens. I love it. I mean, I think the skills, right? It's like that's such an important factor of empower, like teach teach someone to fish and and give someone fish and they eat for the day, and like teach them how to fish and they can you yeah. know like eat all their life. And this is a skill set and it meets so many needs. And I mean, how can people support the work that you're doing? It's a great question, right? Because often we're like, well, what can I do? Right. Should I take someone into my home? Say no. 
right? Like for, you, you might be able to help in that way in the Night Stop program with 360. But I think generally what we need, uh, the housing crisis, we're in this situation, it all started with bad policy. Homelessness has always been around, but in the, the late 80s, early 90s, with policy changes around, we're not going to build any more social housing or the federal government, that's not our business, downloading that onto, we saw the level of homelessness just spike. So it's only going to change with good policy, yeah. right? Around income supports, around housing, around all those pieces. So I think we need people to work with their MPPs, work with their MPs. Right now, the Canadian Alliance on Homelessness, which does a great job on rallying Canadians they, on like the vote, vote for housing, make housing an issue. They've got something right now around, they're suggesting this well-researched out housing benefit. And if you go on their website, at caeh.ca and click on this. It actually, like you, you put in your info, it sends a letter to your MP and MPP to say, hey, I support this and it's well-written. We want you to do this. Uh, actually, sorry, it's just the MP, it's federal. Let's do this. So they want to create that groundswell and it's easy for people to do. Okay, cool. But be a part of that solution. Um, volunteer at uh, your local organization, right? To, to give back. Maybe you're making meals. Maybe you're mentoring someone. Uh, maybe it's just taking part in their events, right? That happened to be part of that solution and, and, and learn more. And if you can, if you have it in you and you have the dollars to give, those dollars make a difference. Governments plays a huge part in this. And in episode is community, right? Yeah. Community has to step up and, and, and help out. And I see communities doing that every day. Yeah. Um, you know, and if you really think back, who in their life doesn't know someone? who's experienced homelessness, addictions, or mental health issues, that if they had these pieces, right, in place, maybe that would have been different. So you have an opportunity to be part of that solution by giving back. No, I, that's really good to know and that people can do that because I think it's like, we're talking about this and my, my mind always goes to, what's the call to action? What can we do, right? Because it's more than just discussing it. We have to move that needle forward. We have to move the bar higher so that we can actually be a part of the solution as, a, as opposed to a part of the problem. Um, yeah. And ignorance is, is not, you know, acceptable in my opinion, right? Because it's like, it's like, oh, well, I don't see it. So it doesn't exist. It does exist. And it impacts everyone. And I think we see that. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. So as, as a parent, um, my partner, Sylvia, often says, because I, I will tend to when the, our kids are doing something, I might ignore it more because I'm just lazy or I don't want to deal with it. But she'll point out to me, it's not going to get better by not addressing it, by turning that blind eye. Same thing with homelessness, right? Yeah. You can turn a blind eye. You can say someone should do something about it or that someone could be you. And you can. It doesn't take dollars, right? You see some of the people like the Kathy Crows, uh, Diana McNally, uh, Chen, um, and she's uh, there's others that are doing incredible. Like they're advocates that will not let political leaders off the hook. Easy. They push back. Uh, it's tough work but they rally people to go out to budget meetings at city hall, you know, and, and sometimes great things happen. Just the other day at York region, they looked at um, kind of a 1% addition to taxation dollars or, or and they um, wanted to use that for homelessness initiatives and council voted 22 to zero in favor. It was incredible to see wow, this council cares and, and kudos to the York region team and all the advocates who did deputations and the York region team who put together a good plan, but they did that and they made it easy for the, the uh, politicians to say, yeah, this makes sense. How can I say no 
when you're yeah. like a villain. Well, right? that's a key thing. So. Like that success though is built on advocacy yeah. and people who are willing to navigate and talk to it. Like my guess as, as someone who, you know, is interested in advocacy is that they probably had a key message. They went and spoke with every counselor to say, look how this impacts you locally. I don't know the ins of how that worked. Do you by any chance know how they were able to be successful? They speak with every counselor. They do a lot of work in social media. They're very good about crafting the right messages. And the right messages are not just, here's what you're doing wrong. It's about presenting solutions, right? And we know that every time we go in with government relations, if you go into, say, our our provincial government right now, kind of your lead would be about, I have an idea to save the government some dollars. I'm listening. And here's how we're going to do it, because we're going to do preventative programs that are going to help, like Construct, to get people off the street, put them into the trades. I love it. Great. Multiple wins, right? This wasn't my first win choice, but you gave me this win. So, and with the the government before that, it was different. It was like, all right, what's the social outcome? Plus, it's going to save us money. Perfect, right? But it is solution based. I find when we sometimes we're bad in the sector when we get uh, government to the table, all we do is scream and yell at them. And they're like, I don't want to work with anyone who scream, you know, and you're yelling at me. What? I don't have all the answers. Tell me what the tailor-made answer is. The advocates do a great job of that and say, hey, if you took X from this police budget, you would probably have to, you wouldn't need as many officers because if you put into community services, they can make sure. So crime goes down when you have housing, right? Uh, It's crazy. There's just recently, there's uh, the region is going to build, York region is going to build a new men's housing. Uh, We operate it now. We hope to operate the new one, but Ours is in the middle of nowhere. It's 30 years old. They need a new housing structure. They're going to put in Aurora. And Aurora Planning Council, people went berserk. There's about 40 people. Not in my backyard. Yeah, you know, I thought we'd come a long way. Um, I was reminded of the 360 days of the same thing, right? Like, you know, criminals all around, needles everywhere, my property values, the character of the neighbor, like every textbook, whatever. Crime goes down. Yeah. Property values don't uh, don't drop. Like it's all false, and there's data to, to. But everyone, like you know, I love the idea. Just not here. And if you saw where it was, it's in a wooded area. There's not a neighbor in sight. It's on Youngs. It's perfect, right? The region owns it, so the cost is down. Like there isn't a better site. People just have fear, um, and then that fear stoked by each other. They're almost it was like a mob <laughs> mentality of cheering each other on. It was sad to see. Um, and, and, and people, there's a few who spoke who said, I'm, I'm ashamed of this community and how they're responding. You know, our community isn't a community for some, it's for all. So let's approach that in support, right? So it's, you know, it's out there, but you have to be, you can, you can fight with those people or you can say, tell me what your fears are and let's work around them. Some will, will never come around, but there are reasonable people that will say, okay, thank you for sharing. I feel better now and, and I support it. Yeah, no. And that's actually a really key point of you want to do something good, but just not here. <laughs> and and that's common. Like you see that in so many different sectors of, of people kind of go, nah, like, yeah, okay, <laughs> but try it somewhere else before you try it here. And I mean, with this success record, I mean, and the, you know, council voting unanimously, making sh- like, and, and creating this, I mean, I don't know if it's really a pilot, but is this amenable? Right? Can this be done in other places? 
And everything, like everything should be scalable with uh, nothing's really original or super innovative. I mean, we took this, our construction program was borrowed from Toronto, who borrowed it from Manitoba, who borrowed it from uh, Newfoundland, right? Like, and so everyone, we share these ideas. Yeah. And yes, like a lot of it is, let's test it here. Let's show the outcomes, let's prove it works. And then we can scale this to a larger level across the country. Like it, it should be done like that. And I think our sector is great, right? Um, like one of the things that we do in partnership with the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness is we do a podcast called On the Way Home. Here on the podcast yeah. years back. Um, and that what that does is it shares those great ideas. And people come in and say, here's our problem. Here's what we did. Um, here's how you can work through encampments without making it a, a terrible experience and uh, political experience. Here's how you can build a tiny home. Here's how, uh, yeah. you know, as a lived expert, someone with lived experience, I, I got through this. So we, we share all that information because we, I do believe that with awareness and education, when people know it's harder to turn a blind eye and it's easier to be part of the solution because you, you hear what the solutions are. Yeah, I think... I think that's wonderful, right? And I hope that that serves as an inspiration for folks to be like, why should I care? Like, what what can I do? And knowing and having precedent and seeing it happen is like, it's a great feeling, right? For everyone who's involved, whether it's someone who's in a place that can help support the idea or someone who was experiencing homelessness and going like the couple, well, wow, we can breathe. We now have an income that allows us. I mean, one of the things that I would like to explore is this notion of, you know, the market is structured in such a way that it's rent or buy. But what, what about rent to own, right? Like that's something I want to like understand more of because I think, you know, as I think about it, like how do we create solutions where people who are hardworking, what it is now to come to Canada or to start now, versus what it was 30 years ago or even 10 years ago. Um, I don't want people to feel hopeless, right? Like I'm in a business where it makes me so satisfied when I can find um, a, a place where someone can live comfortably, whether it's renting or buying. Like I just spoke with someone who, a client who is from Nigeria and they were like, I'm like, where do you, they're coming, coming here from Nigeria. And they were like, well, we're, we're looking at Brampton. And I was like, Okay, why? Where are you working? Downtown Toronto. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, hold on a second. Why do you want to live in Bremden? Do you have family there? He's like, I think that's the only place we can afford. But then when we talked a little bit more, they realized, okay, living out in Bremden, maybe it might be a more affordable transportation, commute time, um, being out in the suburbs, which is a very different experience than their current life experience where they live. And I said, no, 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 we can make it work. We just have to like, you know, and they were so excited, like, wow, I feel really excited. And so there is something about housing, right? That is so important. And then the idea of wraparound supports that, you know, learning a trade, being employable, getting out of the system. It's like, put me out of business. I mean, um, I used to volunteer in out of the cold and out of the cold, popped up in churches where they had large spaces and you would get a sound at the, after you spent the night, you'd get a token and a a lunch bag to, you know, go walk the streets during the day. And when the evening falls, that token gets you to the next out of the cold thing. And I think it was supposed to be a temporary solution. And now 
the city counts on that as a part of a housing emergency housing. Yes. Well, it's, it, listen, that's a slippery slope to YU. So there's a lot of talk around in Canvas right now uh, in the region of Waterloo, um, the legal clinic in Waterloo, um, one with Ontario Superior Court, one about all that. You couldn't, um, and I'm going to butcher this a bit, but basically you couldn't just take down the encampment if you didn't have spaces for them to go, which is wonderful, right? That's great. It's good. And so every other municipality is like, uh-oh. So it's what's going to happen to us and what the, the challenge to that too, although it's wonderful and you don't just want the dismantling of um, encampments because reality is, hey, we're going to kick you all out. They're just going to set up over here, right? Like if you don't have um, choices for people is that we don't want to want it to become that out of the cold. All right. So now we've got another thing. Encampments are okay and we'll throw up more tents for people, right? And, and then that becomes the norm. That's not right either. Yeah. So, so we, we, I think the focus of that is less work on having acceptable choices. So encampments are never an option. So out of the colds are never an option. We run, that, we run that program now. It used to run uh, separately uh, by the faith community and we folded it and worked with them to amalgamate into Blue Door because we didn't want it to end at the token in the lunch bag. We wanted it to end with housing right? yeah. and make that journey different. Well, I think it's getting beyond good enough. Yeah. Yeah, like we, we did that. And again, and you, you don't want to ever kill the... Um, the, the momentum and the passion of the community who's doing it, largely the faith communities who do the out of the cold. It's amazing. So you want them to be, it gives them uh, a chance to be involved. But yeah, we got to get beyond good enough to housing and thriving. And sometimes uh, Rahana Sumar, who's run that program for 15, 16 years, will say, you know, we'll have people that are not ready in a sense, that they're not in a, a place yet to leave the out of the cold, but when they are, now they have somewhere to land, right? And even if it's 10 years, their journey, when they're ready to find housing, we will find that for them. Everyone's time is a little different, right? But yeah, we, we it's not more out of the cold programs. It's not more shelters necessarily, although we'll always need them. We can't just, you know, quickly suppose people are, no more shelters, shelters aren't the answer. You, you always need some emergency shelters. Like they provide um, a much needed service, but, they wouldn't be as full. You don't need as many more spaces if you had affordable options that are out there. Uh, right now at Blue Door, we see more and more people who are working, some working full-time in the shelter system because they simply can't afford housing. And yeah. that's a sad fact, right? Uh, they don't want to be there. They don't need all the support services. We don't need uh, to be you know, spending that kind of money on them. And they don't want to be there. If you give them a different option, you know, they'd be out in a minute. So we need to have those options available. No, a hundred percent. I mean, Wood Green um, has this program, right? Where I, I know, I don't think they get parents or, or single women who have children from shelters, but what they would, but I know that that's how it originated. And what they would do is give them a pathway where they would have housing for X period of time. And during that time, they would help them go to a post-secondary educational institution to get a certificate, right? Whatever the college is or anything. And then give them an internship so they could apply that skill set and after that hopefully get a job so that they're sustainable yeah. and then they have to move out of the housing um and i know that with you know like different women who i've met who have been in that program it's been a godsend because they've been able to empower themselves there's child there's wraparound services but they've been able to pull themselves outside from a situation that would have been very dire. And so that was one model that works. And 
that has worked, which is very inspiring, but we need more. Right. Oh, we need to replicate that. I know the program you're talking about is incredible, right? Because if you don't have the worry of housing and childcare, you can focus on working, you can focus on schooling, right? And we need to replicate that and make that open to people. Transitional housing is funny in a sense, too, that for the longest time, transitional housing was defined as one day less a year, right? Like, the only reason that wasn't designed for clients who said, I need one day less a year to find housing. It was designed because social service agencies were a little worried about if they stay more than a year, where they're now under the Landlord Tenant Act, right? And, And how do we work through that if that doesn't work? Or how do I get people out so new people can come in, right? Because the pressure sometimes is, well, how many people came through for the dollars? Well, it's not necessarily a success if you're windmilling people through the program and they're not finding housing on the other side, right? Yeah. Um, so it's tough for government to say, if you say, I need, you know, uh, $2 million to buy a house and there's going to be four people in that house at a time. Like, wow, that's a lot of money per person to get them into housing. Well, it's not. If you look at nights off the street for those people and how long that asset's going to be around, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, so sometimes... You know, it's that greater they look for that we help thousands of people spending this much. And it's, it's a bit of a numbers game. But we have to invest in these programs, invest in housing and, yeah, be innovative in how uh, we move people forward. We have a new, uh, the region built new transitional housing called Passage House at Blue Door. And these gorgeous one-bedroom apartments for individuals. Um but if you don't put the right individual in there, I mean, the right person that is at a stage in their life where within a year, I could find a place like this. I just need a little bit of support. In the meantime, like the program you spoke to, if you get someone who's more chronic or what we call high acuity with many more issues, um, they're, they're never going to be able to leave that apartment and find something similar for the dollars that they have, right? So you, again, you're setting them up for the cycle of failure. And, and so you, you have to you have to really like have different forms of housing for different people at different stages in their life. And that's what Finland did, right? To make sure it's a success. So if we were to, if we could ask politicians to do something or a call to action for the average person, what's a, what is something that is that we should be thinking about? If, just as a closing thought, sort of. Listen, when you go out, make sure that housing and affordable housing is, um, you know, and that vote for housing is, is something that's going to get people elected, right? So make it an election issue. And that if you don't do something, you don't have a plan, a viable plan, whatever, I'm not going to vote for you. So I need you to see that you're working with others in the community on something that could really happen. So, so, and, uh, you know, we see that now that housing is affecting the middle class that is becoming great about it every day, right? Because it is affecting. So it's there. We need to push politicians to work with community uh, builders to have a viable plan if they want to. And and the next people that are coming in to continue on with that plan. So it doesn't uh, stop when people come into power. We need greater income supports. You can't have, uh, I mean, uh, just recently, the uh, provincial government here in Ontario, 5% increased uh, ODSP. It's 40 bucks a month, man. Like that, that is not the difference maker. It's almost, uh, again, you're like $40. Really? That's it. Um, you need to double those. There are 1995 levels or below. We need to double those and people need to push right now. There's, they're talking about, um, social assistance reform, but they're not talking about the dollar amounts. They're talking about how it's given out and how they can set it up. They need to talk about the dollar amounts. And, And I think incentive to that 
all levels of government have to work together to do that. The feds have to come to the table. Like I said, much like they've done with childcare and healthcare, you know, why does that matter so much? If you don't have housing, you can't, uh, you know, healthcare won't matter, right? Like you need the housing first for healthcare and, and childcare and those types of things. So this should be something on the minds of all Canadians. We have to push our levels of government to make it so. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really well said and that deeply affordable, like that distinction that you made. It's like, not just a, because like the middle class, oh, well, we need housing, like housing affordability is an issue, which is very different than affordable housing. Like I think sometimes people confuse the terminology a little bit. And I think the point that you made earlier on, we need deeply affordable housing is very important because if someone's on $700 a month and we actually break it down into dollars and cents or 30% of their income. I do that all the time with clients who are looking to rent or something. And I'm like, uh, your income really doesn't like, how can you afford that? You're going to be spending over 50% of your income. And the reality that sets in is like, you can't have this, you can have this. And so deeply affordable housing is something that is really important. And that's something where you read about it in the news all the day, like every single day about, oh, like we need to build more. We need to do this. Oh, but the cost of everything is going up. And so we really do. It's a crisis. We do have a housing crisis that's impacting everyone. And unless we kind of come together and, and think about infill or, or, you know, different ways of doing housing, um, it's not going to be resolved quickly, but we have to come up with a plan like Finland, long-term plan that is succeeded by different governments saying, okay, we got to stick to it. We got to keep continuing. Well, here's our 10-year investment. I mean, we, we do have the national housing strategy that yeah. 2017, which is incredible. It's just not moving fast enough. They, they've got things like the rapid housing. Uh, CMHC is, is trying, but it's still taking too long to make these in, in too many barriers in place. So we're going to speed that up, right? Uh, so that's great. But, uh, you know, food banks in Toronto have seen a 200% year-over-year increase. When people are done paying for housing, food bank users, they have $8.00 a month left to pay for food. That's why they're at the food bank. When, the, when if you're black or, indi or indigenous, you have six bucks. Like, so that's the amount left over for food. Hence why they're going to the food bank and said, we don't need more. The reason that's happening because housing prices have shot up. Uh, wages haven't kept up. Income supports are what they were uh, for the last 30 years plus. So until we change that, and ERs will say the waiting times in hospitals are, are growing as well. Well, that's largely too. We're pushing more and more people into that system because they don't have housing. Housing would shorten those lines, would ease up the burden on our healthcare system that is weighed down uh, and, and probably empty out food banks and they'd be okay with that, right? Because um, all those talented people, there's lots of work to go around, right? We'd, uh, we'd find the jobs, but but food banks, you know, the answer is not, you know, of course, give to food banks. Please don't, you know, take yeah, yeah, massive of course, of But as uh, their CEO, Neil, would say, the answer is not more food banks. The answer is if people have affordable housing and livable incomes, there would be no need for that service, yeah. right? Like we need to get to less food banks because yeah. it's an indication of where society is. Um, one of the things I really appreciate you is about you are action oriented. You're about getting it done. And you shared with me your favorite quote, which is leap and the net will appear. 
And I feel like every time I've spoken to you throughout the many years, you're working on amazing projects that actually help address things in its own way. And, and it's a model that like it inspires others to follow. And you are surrounded by amazing people, but I, but you know, I just wanted to ask you about like your quote. You know what? I think people spend too much time waiting around thinking like, you know, well, this is a good solution, but we're not ready yet. Or I don't know if like the government would do if, and my, you know, my team will tell us because sometimes it drives them crazy, right? Where they're like, maybe we should sit back and focus on this because we're growing too quickly. Like we're growing quickly because the need is there. And we don't have time to sit back and do that. Um, we need to do it now and figure it out. And that's why you do things. You're like, all right, if we can get X number of dollars, call it a demonstration or a pilot project, show that it works. What's the minimum we can do to get this off the ground and grow it from there? And we've done it uh, at Raising the Roof. There's a program. And, and usually what it is is a scan of things that have worked around the world. Reside at Raising the Roof, which uh, Mark Sobrano of Building Up and Raising the Roof has done a great job of growing. The principle behind that was there's thousands of vacant homes across the country sitting there rotting away that for their like fewer dollars than building new, we can renovate these homes. Um, and not only does it create work for social enterprises like Constructor Building Up, but then you then could go to Eva's place, Wood Green and others and say, you can rent this at 30% because there's no overhead. Like there's no, we, we don't have a mortgage or anything on these homes. And so you, you've saved a property. Now you have affordable housing forever. Um, and people are paying it. It's a nice neighborhood. Good thing. There's heritage homes, um, uh, in, uh, at, uh, Blue Door, we did something similar where Parks Canada in Rouge Valley Park has 44 vacant homes just rotting away. They don't have the capital to do it. We raised the capital to do it. And what they did in return, and I'd done this in previous works with 360 Kids and, and uh, Raising the Roof um, with a reside program, is you're going to give us 30 years of rent. Basically, it's like we pay 30 years of rent um, upfront by doing these rentals, right? So mm -hmm. they still own the asset, which is wonderful because the asset would have fallen apart. It's beautiful and brand new and we'll keep it that way. Um, you know, we've created affordable housing. We created a training center for these uh, individuals in these programs to go in and build. There's multiple, multiple wins, right? The community loves it because it's no longer an eyesore. You kept the heritage in the house. Like so, so different ideas like that, but you just get it done. Start with one, yeah. Prove the theory and move forward. You know, even with construct, there was a group who said, "Well, we were going to do that," I'm like, but you didn't. Yet you waited, and then people can't wait. You've got to yeah. get it done. And some of these ideas that I have fall flat, uh, and that's okay. And then you move on to the next one. But I just am like. People experiencing deep poverty and homelessness can't wait for us to figure it out in four to five years or for the conditions to be perfect. You just have to do it and be fearless in pushing people, selling it to government, making them part, making it a multiple wins out of one project, right? I think in just thinking um, of partners who normally you wouldn't think of, like when we were due at Raising the Roof and uh, someone at, uh, oh no, this was at 360 Kids, where uh, Daryl Gray from the Toronto Region Conservation Authority said, I want to help. Like, what can we do? And so we started talking and there was employment opportunities. And then it came up that the TRCA has like 168 scattered homes, some of which were vacant, right? Like they rent out. 
they just came with the land, right? That they and they said, well, we have these properties, same thing. If we do this thirty-year agreement, we fix that house. You guys now have a beautiful home that's worth more, and it's on your land. We get the affordable housing for a group. Everyone would win. So the Toronto uh, region, um, the TRCA was now in the business of affordable housing. Isn't that beautiful? They win, we win, everyone for way fewer dollars than it would cost to build because it exists. The neighborhood loves it. They're doing their part. Uh, the group's supporting that. It's rent geared to income. So, so it's that, let's just look for those kind of partnerships you wouldn't know that would work. Don't be afraid. Be a little fearless of pushing them forward and start small. Build this, build it, and then scale it, right? And I think that's where I'm saying you have to be fearless in this work because these are times that that need that kind of fearless. Um, don't be reckless, but but be fearless and planful, and you can make it happen. Michael, you are a fearless leader, and I really appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're just inspir- inspirational. <laughs> <laughs>